Hello, folks. Pull up a chair and join us on this adventure we call the Good Judgment Podcast. The episode notes for this incredibly entertaining and informative episode you are about to consume are available at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Hello, folks. Welcome back to the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Patrick. And I'm Tane Kell. And we're really glad to have you here today. Tane, we're going to do something a little different. It's a little scary. You scary. I have been sort of really interested, I guess, in this whole issue of impeachment and all the different ways that a witness might be impeached and then the jury charges that go with that and all that. So instead of writing an outline and yeah. talking about, Tane, you should say this and then I'll say that. Yeah. What I decided to do is just to give everybody the memo, I guess, for lack of a better word, that appears in my trial notebook. Where can they find that, Tane? At goodjudgepod.com. But this is on the topic of impeachment and ultimately on the topic of rehabilitation. So, Tane, there are essentially, and we are completely ripping this off from Millich, okay? Yeah. We, we Hey, shout out. <laughs> Does out that per- somehow cover us for the fact yeah. that we've that we've completely shout out yeah. covers all plagiarism? Yeah, awesome. Um, Professor Millich says there are six ways to impeach a witness. So let's go through the six, and then we're going to go back and sort of touch them in order. So if you're going to sure. impeach a witness, what are the six potential ways you might do that? First thing is disprove facts testified to by that witness. That's Rule 621. Then there are prior convictions of the witness or being there, the fact that they were prior, previously convicted felon. That's Rule 609. Right. And then the third one is bias or influence, and that's Rule 622. The next is character issues, for such as character for truthfulness. That's Rule 608A1 and 2. Yeah. And then the fifth one is prior inconsistent statements, and that's Rule 613. And then finally, incompetence to testify, which I think you hopefully you'll rarely see, but that is someone's actual ability to understand the nature of an oath. Right. And, and when we're talking about these things, not to oversimplify, but we do have some students and people who listen to the podcast as well. When we say Rule 621 or Rule 609, we're talking about 20, OCGA Section 24-6-621 or six, all of those in the evidence code. Want to follow along? Visit our website. Find this episode outline and more information on this episode at goodjudgepod.com. That's goodjudgepod.com. Com. So, Tane, just as a trivia question, out of those six, do you know which one that Millich identified as probably the most effective uh, or most common quali- uh, impeachment technique out of those six? My guess would be prior inconsistent statements, but that's a guess. That's very good. We didn't even, we didn't even, I didn't even throw you that softball beforehand. Very nice. Well, I mean, I'd I'd say over the last 35 years of all of the litigation that I've done, that's probably the one that comes up five times more than any other. Now, under Rule 620... Although I do love it when, on the other side, they have a good felony conviction. Yeah, that's that, always really nice to get yeah, in. That's, that, that doesn't have very much nuance to it at all. Gratuitously thrown in, yeah. Under Rule 620, credibility is always an issue. Doesn't matter if it's a civil case, criminal case, credibility is always an issue. So a witness, Tane, cannot testify whether they believe another witness. This happens a lot in criminal cases, unfortunately in cases like child molestation cases. Mm-hmm where mom or dad is asked, now, do you believe your daughter? And and not to stereotype, it's usually a daughter, but do you believe your child? Mm-hmm. You just can't do that. 
Right. And and I'll I'll caution, you also see a lot of prosecutors who want to ask the investigating officer whether they believed somebody who gave them a statement or not. And, you know, you can't cross that line. You just nope. got to not cross that line. Rule 620. Now, under very, very, very limited uh, circumstances, an expert may be able to testify about the credibility of another person, but that really goes more to competence than credibility. Yes. Now, parties can't really bolster credibility either, correct, Wade? Well, Tane, if I tell you that this thing that I'm holding is not a bottle of Diet Dr. Pepper, but is in fact a block of gold. Okay. That, I wish that were true. That's true. It'd be, it'd be heavy. Well, you got a lot of Dr. Peppers in <laughs> that bag over there, so I really wish that were true. But the problem is, it, even if you say it a lot, that doesn't make it more true. Mm-hmm. And that's what bolstering is. It, just the fact that you said it to your mama and to your cousin and to the Rotary Club doesn't make it any more true. Yeah. He told everybody he didn't shoot that guy in the head. Again and again and again. Yeah. So you can say, for example, you can't sort of rehabilitate a witness taint until that credibility has been attacked. It's called improper bolster. That makes sense. Well, let's start out with the first one, Wade. Let's talk about impeachment via contradiction. Um OCGA section 21-6-621. Or wait, wait, try again. 24? I'm sorry, 24-6-621, what we were calling Rule 621. Um, that provides a witness may be impeached by disproving the facts testified to by the witness. Now, as Millich points out, if a witness testifies that he and the defendant were at home on the night in question, the opposing party can challenge the witness, provided there's a good faith reason to believe that what you're asking about is true. For example, isn't it true that you and the defendant were really at the shadow bar the night the fight broke out? Or it would be, if you go further, it would be improper to ask, after the initial fight, isn't it true that you left the bar, the defendant remained, and he assaulted the other party? You weren't there. It sounds like that great thing that happened during the Johnny Depp trial recently when he said when the You spent way much more time on that than the I did. Ah, it was really fun. Um the lawyer asked Johnny Depp, um, and do you know what happened after you left? And he said, I wasn't there after I left. <laughs> <laughs> Which is uh, kind of golden, actually. It's like when people ask uh, uh, medical examiners, how did you know he was dead? <laughs> I'm holding his brain. Yeah, um, anyway, exactly. there is a requirement that any questioning relating to the contradiction of testimony, that the question relate to something the witness could have personally known. But as long as you have a good faith basis, you can attempt to contradict whatever that witness testified to as long as it's somehow material to the case. That's right. Um, now, Tane, you remember we talked earlier about what people like to do? Yeah. Like, do you believe other witnesses? Right. Then on the top of page two of our outline, we have another one of those questions people just love to ask, and it's just improper. Yeah, I, I always love this because we've all heard it before. It's equally improper to ask the witness why the other witnesses who have testified to the contrary facts would be lying. <laughs> So, so if, why would so he if the officer said that he read you Miranda, he's lying. I mean, yes. that's just an improper question. Right. <laughs> yeah. So um, don't don't let people do that. There are very few limits on what can be used on cross-examination to contradict a witness's testimony. It, the only real sort of um, lane marker is that it has to be on a non-collateral matter. 
at some point, if the guy says, well, back when I was the mayor of Harlem, Georgia, I saw that guy run the green light or, you know, run the red light and, and hit the other guy. He had the green light. You weren't really the mayor. You were really just the city manager. Isn't right. that true? Right. I mean, there comes a point where you go, okay, kind of not the point. You, as the judge, you give them some leeway, but when it gets too far afield, you do have the ability post-2013, for example, that you that you can ask some questions, but there has to be a limit to that. At some point, the sideshow takes over the circus. Yeah, and as you said, there's some limits to that, but, but for example... Uh, if some if somebody a witness in a murder case said he was never married, and the pr- prosecutor has reason to good faith reason to believe that the person was married, and it's immaterial to the case, but it does touch on the credibility of the case. As a judge, yeah, you might give them a little bit of leeway to go into that, but again, like you said, you don't want to let the sideshow take over the circus. So, so you're going to let them bring in the marriage certificate from 1974? <laughs> We're not trying that case <laughs> during this, the murder trial. Right. Yeah, the the no, you weren't. Yes, I was. But the other the other issue with that, Wade, is the way that that question is asked. You might let them ask the question. Well, isn't it true that you were actually married to so and so in 1957? But you're stuck with their answer. You don't get to bring in the marriage certificate and do the all extrinsic of the rest evidence, of that. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, just so to now, sure. just understand that when a criminal defendant takes the stand, and we're going to point that out a couple of times during today's impeachment episode, when a criminal defendant takes the stand, the rules are a little bit more relaxed. So when the discrepancies by the defendant can be, quote, fully explored, end quote, on cross-examination, regardless of their relevance, the defendant's credibility being so vital that we're going to give the state usually the, a little more room to cross-examine. Absolutely. So now let's move on to number two, impe- impeachment based upon the prior convictions of witnesses. That's so fun. I just It's just so fun. I mean, it's completely almost irrelevant, but at the same time, you just get to go dun-dun-dun-dun. <laughs> <laughs> you almost make that noise. You do. And, and you want to do it like you want to blow it up like one of those checks they give to, you know, sweepstakes winners and make it like, you know, six feet by three feet. I mean, isn't this your conviction for <laughs> child yeah. molestation? Yeah, but, you know. <laughs> A few years ago. Yeah, exactly. So the second thing that we're, the second manner of, of impeachment that we're going to talk about is with a prior conviction. Now, you have to understand all of this has to be run through that 403 filter, Tane. Yeah. All evidence has to be run through the 403 filter, Tane. And, and yeah, that's a really important point. We all know that felony convictions in in many circumstances there are a few exceptions but in many circumstances can come in as impeachment material but you always have to determine whether the probative value of admitting the evidence outweighs its prejudicial effect to the accused. That's OCGA section 24-4-403. So don't forget that, even though this has kind of become root or, uh, rote or routine or something like that to you. Now, Tane, I'm going to talk about this next section for a little bit. The, the cases have all said that there is a difference between attempting to impeach with a prior conviction that is just a felony and attempting to impeach with a prior conviction that is based upon a false statement sort of crime, mm-hmm. right? That's A1 and A2, 609, A1, A2. 
Now, understand that there's also a little subtest if the witness testifying is the defendant as opposed to any other witness in a criminal case as opposed to any other party in a civil or criminal case. Yeah. So and what so I'm going to go through the test for witnesses who are not the accused and then you take the the test that is applicable for when the when the accused take the stand, okay? Absolutely. And yeah, don't confuse these because there there are some important differences. So when introducing evidence of impeachment against someone who is not the accused in a criminal trial, so in any other trial, any other kind of witness, law enforcement officer, alibi witness, whatever, the prior conviction must be for a felony or for a crime such as perjury, criminal fraud, theft by deception, or some other sort of misdemeanor that involves a active misstatement, a deception, what some people call crimin falsi instead of crimin prohibitum. Wow. No, thank you. Latin. Go, man. Uh, it's millage. Number two, the conviction is only admissible if the probative value substantially outweighs its prejudicial, uh, prejudicial effect, the 403 analysis that, that Tane talked about a minute ago. Three, and this is where these become important. Not more than 10 years have elapsed between the prior conviction or date of release from confinement, actual confinement, and the date the witness testifies. We have a lot of cases on that. We're not going to wear that out today. Number four, the prior nolo contendere convictions are not admissible to impeach. Number five, first offender conditional discharge convictions, if you want to call them a conviction, are not admissible, assuming that that was successfully completed. Be aware that present probation, even for a first offender, is probably admissible against any state witness who is testifying if they, if they, basically a Giglio thing, if they are thinking that maybe they would be motivated, it might impact their, their testimony. Six, prior juvenile adjudications are not admissible unless the trial court makes very specific findings, and if that happens, you need to get out our outline. And finally, number seven, prior convictions which resulted in a pardon based upon actual innocence are not admissible. We've got cases on most of those things. That doesn't happen very often, but it, it could. It, it could. could. So now tell the people about when the, when the witness is the defendant in a criminal case. Absolutely. So when the witness being impeached is the accused, the following are the factors that you use as a test. First, uh, no misdemeanors other than the crimin falsi. Wow, I didn't even feel comfortable saying that. Uh, crimin falsi crime may be introduced against the accused. Now, I, I'm going to give you a little bit of uh, understanding about that. It's in one of the footnotes to the case. But um, those criminal uh, deception misdemeanors, that crimin falsi uh, type, misdemeanors, they don't include things like misdemeanor theft or misdemeanor shoplifting or misrepresentation of a controlled substance as a controlled substance. That's actually a crime, people. Uh, but a prior conviction for giving false information to a law enforcement officer may be used. We've got some sites uh, for you in the, in the outline on that. So if in doubt, 
probably better not to allow a misdemeanor conviction to be in there unless it's clearly a crime based upon some kind of falsehood or dishonesty or deception. So that's, and this next factor will give you the way to get there if you if you need to. That's a good point. So so factor number one was uh, no misdemeanors other than those criminal falsity. Number two is don't forget that you must always perform a section 403 analysis, that probative value versus prejudicial value analysis prior to every conviction offered against the accused. And as Wade said, that's a great way if you're in doubt to say, hey, look, you know what? This may be one of those misdemeanor crimes, but the probative value of this is is far outweighed by its prejudicial value in this case. The third one is uh, if the prior conviction is less than 10 years old, then the court must make a finding that the probative value outweighs the prejudicial effect as the evidence of the defendant's bad character. So again, you're making a bad character analysis um, on a conviction that's less than 10 years old. Number four, if the prior conviction is more than 10 years old, it can only be admitted under subsection B, and the trial judge must go further and put on the record the specific facts and circumstances upon which the trial court relied in balancing the probative value against the danger of unfair prejudice. So if you're going to use a, an old conviction, what they sometimes refer to as stale convictions, convictions over 10 years old, you just understand you've got to go into some detail and say why it would be appropriate for you to use that. And then the fifth uh, part of the analysis is the trial judge should be giving a or should give a limiting instruction if requested and the prosecutor cannot argue that the prior conviction suggests that the defendant has a propensity to commit the type of crime for which he is on trial now we all know that that's why they want to put that crime into evidence but they can't argue that one of those legal fictions that that we understand that's what you're wanting but you can't say it right and then we let the jury, jury do with that information whatever they wish. But that limiting instruction um, is an important point there. And certainly if somebody asks you to give a limiting instruction, again, you need to tell the jury, I'm letting this in because, you know, I, I'm. It, it is something that relates to... Uh, Credibility. Yeah, the credibility of this witness. However, you shouldn't consider it for any other purposes. Right. Uh, so, you know, something at a minimum, something along those lines. So, Tane, if I were to ask you back from your litigator days, your your pre-retirement, pre-judge days, how do you get in a prior conviction? Your knee-jerk response is going to be? Certified copy of the uh, conviction. Well, that's no longer the law. It right. is the right way to do it. It is the smart way to do it because you have judges who still believe that to be true. Absolutely. But but it's not actually required. Right. You just have to have a good faith basis that it exists. Right. Um, if the witness denies that prior vic conviction, counsel must have a certified copy if to prove it and to avoid a potential hearsay issue, right? Yeah. And I, I mean, I think, you know, Judges, I'm sorry, attorneys would be crazy uh, to walk into the courtroom without a certified copy of the conviction and just hope that the defendant's going to go, oh, yeah, those, those me. Uh, you mean, you mean that, that, that's not the way your trials worked out? Uh, you just yeah, hope that, for stuff and it just works out that way? You know, I've seen too many people come in there with a hope and a prayer. And, uh, yeah, it's just not good lawyering. But uh, anyway. So that certified copy, should mm -hmm. we get there, Right. It, it you need to redact it. Yes. It should only have the name of the crime for which the witness was convicted, the time and place of that conviction, and the sentence that was imposed. The details of the crime, like in the indictment, are irrelevant and inadmissible for impeachment purposes. 
The witness can have a brief opportunity to explain or deny, whatever, mitigate that conviction. But the testimony then may open the door to something else. And then the party offering the conviction cannot admit the conviction for impeachment and then argue that the witness has a propensity to commit that kind of crime. You, you said that earlier about the accused. That applies to witnesses, too. Right. And and, and I would I would caution you here, too. Um, when You don't have to do it the moment that the um, conviction is introduced, especially if they're not asking to publish it to the jury right then and there. But if I'm the judge and a conviction is introduced, I want to look at the sheets of paper that have been stapled together before they go to the, before they're published to the jury, because I've had people try to attach the warrant, you know, that has all kinds of hearsay and the victim impact statement. Yeah. I mean, attaching. So if I'm, if I'm the trial judge, I want to see exactly what's attached and what's redacted and whether it's been redacted and all those things just a just a trial point all right just one more one more note yeah. if a witness is disciplined by some sort of professional licensing agency that's mm -hmm. not a conviction right a conviction is a criminal conviction right. it may be relevant if that disciplinary report was relevant for some reason but that is not the same as introducing a conviction there's some cases on that in the outlaws folks we'll be right back after this pause for station identification Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. And tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. So, Tang, let's talk about impeachment via bias or influence. Sure. OCGA section 24-6-622 says... The state of a witness's feelings toward the parties and the witness's relationship to the parties may always be proved for the consideration of the jury. And that's essentially party bias, uh, a bias against the party. Or prejudice or an interest in the outcome of the case or fears of the witness or mm -hmm. any other factor that may tend to influence the testimony of the witness. This is where you're going to get into impeachment by what might otherwise be considered Giglio material, which is, I don't know why I keep saying that word today. It's like the third time I've cited that case. Feeble fester. <laughs> well, that, now, let's not tell everybody our <laughs> secrets. Um, so basically, the, the reason that if somebody had a deal, if somebody wanted a deal, if they were pending sentencing, that might impact their, wit their, their testimony. Therefore, that is a form of impeachment via potential, I guess, bias. It's not obvious that you're getting paid to testify, expert witness, who is getting paid an hourly rate to testify. We can impeach with that interest in the outcome of the case. Somebody who was intimidated. You know, they got the, the, the hit notice from, on Facebook direct messenger thing. That can all come in, and, that in, and, that, and the person can be, can be impeached. Remember now, Tane, you can impeach your own witness. 
Oh, and I have. <laughs> <laughs> Not even because I that, wanted to. Nope. <laughs> when, that surpri- to. when that surprise testimony yeah. came out at trial, I'm like, oh, now we're on cross-examination. <laughs> so so you want to talk any about that? Uh, no, I, I wanted to go on, though, to talk about evidence that a party attempted to influence a witness. That'll be something that may come up from time to time. Just be careful when you have that, um, because the case law says that um, in a circumstance where someone has attempted to influence a witness on behalf of a party, a third party has attempted to do that, there has to be some knowledge or acquiescence on behalf of the defendant, and you have to have something to show that there was some acquiescence on behalf of the defendant, not that, you know, mama just went over to bribe the girlfriend to say that he didn't actually hit her or whatever. Um, He had to actually know. So the proper proper procedure, if you find yourself dealing with somebody who's attempting to impeach about bias or influence or interest, etc., is for that witness to be confronted with the facts indicating bias or prejudice and give the witness an opportunity to admit them. If the witness denies the facts or even equivocates over those facts, the evidence, or I guess extrinsic evidence, may be introduced to support the impeachment. If the witness denies the facts that would suggest bias, extrinsic evidence, I think I've just said that twice, that the witness can be confronted even if he just equivocates but those underlying facts that if they are admitted by the witness, the impeachment's done and we don't get to pile on by also introducing facts. If, if the witness admits the bias point, we don't get to pile on and, and do it some more and introduce extrinsic evidence. But you do if they equivocate. And one of the great equivocations of all times came in uh, the movie Casablanca when uh, Peter Laurie says to Humphrey Bogart, you detest me, don't you, Rick? And Rick says, I probably would if I ever thought about you. Now, that's an equivocation. And you can introduce evidence after that that he actually does detest him. So How old are you? Just keep that in mind. I am timeless. I am yeah, ageless and really timeless, old. Wade. 60's the new 40, Wade. Well, but you're far past that. <laughs> Establishing uh, that a witness for the prosecution is receiving any beneficial treatment. We've talked about that right. exhaustively. I'm not going to say it again. I'm not, I'm not going to cite that case again. And then trial courts usually liberally allow expert witnesses to be beat up, I mean cross-examined, <laughs> concerning their financial relationship with don't, the parties. Don't hate me because I'm making money. That's right. <laughs> but you're getting paid an hour. All um, right. So impeachment via character. So now we've, we're, we're kind of pretty far down our list. This is number four. Tw- 24-6-608 sets forth two ways to attack or support the credibility of a witness. Call the witness to testify as to that the reputation or opinion for truthfulness or untruthfulness of that witness, or B, cross-examine the witness with any specific prior acts showing lack of truthfulness, yeah. or I guess truthfulness if you're rehabilitating. Right. And, and Rule 608A states that a witness's truthfulness only becomes relevant if he testifies or if his out-of-court statement is admitted for truth under a hearsay exception. So only then can the uh, attacked witnesses rebut uh, with his own witness who testifies as to reputation or opinion for truthfulness. Um, An attack on credibility must always occur first before the witness can offer evidence of truthfulness. So in other words, you can't can't go, well, yeah, he's he's a really truthful witness. So, you know, that's why I think that he told the truth when he said that truthful thing he said. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it kind of goes circular, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, 
in establishing the knowledge that a witness has as to the character or reputation of a witness that is subject to impeachment, the witness who is testifying must be asked if he is familiar with the reputation of the witness who is impeached in the community in which he lives or works, then offering that opinion as to that the, the, the reputation of that witness for truthfulness, the character witness must have some personal knowledge of it, and then the admission of the, he of the testimonies within this court's discretion always under 403. I had a case one time where this was actually done masterfully. And, you know, you can only really ask those three questions and... Well, that was the old rule, but, but, right. but, but and this people, was in the old days. everybody still does it. But this was in the old days. And, and, and I thought, you know, this is going to be ridiculous. No, 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 no. Because the first question they get to ask is, how do you know the defendant? Well, I'm, I've been his pastor at the church he attends for 35 years, and I've seen him, you know, five times a week when he taught every Sunday school class we ever had and all of this. It was, it was awesome, and I, I think I got acquitted, too, because he had a really good group of folks who came in and testified for him. But anyway, yeah, so like you said, that was, that was the old rule that you were limited to asking only those three questions. Um, you can go a little bit farther afield now. You can ask a, a, a lot more questions in terms of getting this evidence in. Now, Tane, I got in a little bit of trouble one time, and I say a little bit of trouble. Shocking. I'm talking about on the appeal thing, Yeah, the whole appeal thing. We love our appellate court judges. They're the best. They're awesome. The character witnesses cannot testify on direct about specific instances of good conduct. I had a case in which the Court of Appeals disagreed with Millich and me. They, they said that I allowed enough to get by, so I didn't get reversed, but they said I made an error, and all of that is cited in the endnote. Mm -hmm. um, read that case for yourself. Basically, they said when you character witnesses get to testify to all these specific instances of good conduct, you know, one time I saw him help a little old lady across the street, and one time he cut his neighbor's grass because he's in the hospital. I don't think that's what the rule says, but I, I think there is some conflicting Georgia law on that point. And there's there's still a little hurt in your voice, Wade. I'm a little hurt. That's a good way to say that. That's probably a better way than I was thinking about saying that. Well, let's move on and talk about impeachment via prior inconsistent statements, the one that Professor Millich and you and I have uh, agreed probably is the one we will experience most often. Um as, as Millich said, perhaps the most frequently used and most effective method of impeaching a witness is showing that the witness has made out-of-court statements that are inconsistent with his or her in-court testimony. I, I couldn't agree more. I mean, if you, from just a simple human nature standpoint, want to impeach somebody, show that they lied about something in court today that they've already told people outside court wasn't true. Now, this is a thing that you used to be unique to Georgia, and it's prior inconsistent statements or even prior consistent statements if they're offered to rehabilitate a witness are substantive evidence they can be used to convict somebody which i had in a case not so long ago so in under georgia law that's substantive evidence that can be considered by the jury the fact that you previously said x and you now say y the 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 x part of that the thing you you said before that can be considered when deciding whether or guilt in a case. That's and right. so just understand that it's substantive evidence. Now, That's there's right. basically three requirements. One, the witness made the out-of-court statement. Two, the statement is inconsistent with their trial testimony. And that can be much more dicey than you might think factually. 
And then three, the out-of-court statement is relevant to the case. We're not going to let you, again, be the mayor of Hogville and then talk about who ran the red light, and we're going to get into here are the election results from, you know, 10 years ago. Right, and, and again, because we've talked about this in different ways, don't get confused. Any witness can be impeached. It, it's not just the the defendant who's on trial in a criminal case. It's not anyway, any witness can be impeached, and so these techniques for impeaching a witness apply to just about anybody who goes on the witness stand. So, with a prior inconsistent statement, that witness has to first be given the chance to explain or deny any prior inconsistent statement before it is proved by any extrinsic evidence. And just so that we're all on the same page, extrinsic evidence. What are we talking about? Yeah, I mean, before you bring any documentation into the courtroom to show that, in fact, they made that st- that statement in a in a blog or in a tweet or in a you know whatever it might be, um, you first have to confront them with the statement and say, "Did you? Well, ha- isn't it true that at some point in time you've said the opposite of X?" <laughs> well, what what happens when they say, "No, I didn't say that." Then you get to bring in the extrinsic evidence to prove that, in fact, they did. And then they can dispute all they want to. No, I didn't make it. Somebody hacked That's not me. What I meant. Whatever. Yeah, you misunderstood. Yeah, it's taken out of context. context. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. We almost said like like you know one two three jinx thing there. I know, right? You owe me a coke. Um, um, but basically, you confront with the prior substantive statement. You ask the witnesses if the witness if they made the statement. It really almost doesn't matter what they say. Yeah. Now, if the prior inconsistent statement is a party admission, like in pleadings or whatever, then it's not even necessary to give them an opportunity to explain or deny that. You can just roll that in. You don't, you don't, you don't have to let them explain how they might have misunderstood that. You can just place it in front of the jury with a flourish. <laughs> I'm not even going to wonder how you might do that. You, you don't need to. Just imagine. So so something else that's important is the out-of-court statement does not need to fully contradict the witness's in-court testimony. It, on, it needs only to clash with something that the witness has said while they're on the stand. So, it, you know, because some, I mean, that, that's the thing that happens most often is it's not a I said X over here and I'm saying Y over here or I'm saying negative X over here. It's usually just that they said some other things that are inconsistent with what they're now saying. For example, where the witness hedges his statement, well, I think, and then this one, I'm positive, that's inconsistent. Exactly. And you can bring that to the jury's attention. What weight they give to it, that's up to them. That's right. Um, and a prior inconsistent statement is not admissible, absent some showing that it was based upon the witness's personal knowledge or from information received directly from a party that is an admission. Basically, you don't get to just bring in. Now, isn't it true? General rip, the the general rumor on the street is <laughs> as fun as that would be. Yeah, we don't get to do that. The people in your neighborhood say you used to say. <laughs> That's right. Well, let's let's talk about the very last one, Wade, that rarely comes up, but is still fun to talk about, and that's impeachment by incompetence. Um, It's kind of an obvious point, but any evidence that shows relevant defects in the witness's physical or mental competence is admissible. And, I mean, that makes perfect sense. I mean, if they made a statement that doesn't seem to be a competent statement, it has less probative value than it would if uh, it were a competent statement. So basically it's always fair game for a witness's ability, you know, their ability to observe or recall the facts in question can be called into question that and, and any reason they may not because they don't want to, they have a interest or bias in the case, but also if they are incompetent for some reason, whether that be drug related, 
um, mental impairment related. It could. Be, I mean, you you are allowed to go into that, but I, in my career, I don't know that I've ever seen it. No, I have. I, I don't believe I have either. So let's talk about rehabilitation. We've gone through the six ways you can we're impeach. Big, we're big believers in rehabilitation. We're, for, we're yes. for it. We are for rehabilitation. No, rehabilitation in this context is is a very different thing. And one of the reasons that Tane and I decided to talk about this is because of the jury charges on impeachment and rehabilitation. Because in a lot of cases, you ask the jur- you ask the, the lawyers, who did you impeach? Um, <laughs> so who did, did you rehabilitate? Um, and, and, and I will say this right now. Um, impeachment, the impeachment jury charge, the used pattern to, charge. Yeah, the pattern charge used to be a very different charge than it is now. And so I would suggest to you, if one of the parties asks for impeachment, little bells and whistles ought to go off in your head and little red flags ought to pop up because you have to explore all of the subsections included in the impeachment jury charge to see if any of them apply. And I, my uh, experience has been rarely do any of them apply. I mean, and again, as Wade said, you need to ask them, well, who specifically are we talking about? Which witness and how did this occur? And how does this particular subsection appropriately describe the impeachment that occurred? Because they're very specific subsections of the impeachment uh, charge. And if it, 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 you shouldn't give that entire charge unless all of those things have been proved or shown or whatever. So and I just the, caution you that if somebody asks you for the impeachment charge and the rehabilitation charge, make sure that there's something there that actually applied. And I agree with you because all too often they'll want you to charge, well, it's the pattern, right? <laughs> I mean, that's the response. Well, it's the pattern, so charge everything. And, we're gonna, and we've got a thousand examples of where that's just error. Yeah, right. So... Last but right. not so let's let's deal with rehab. Let's talk about yeah rehabilitation and how that works. So a witness cannot take the stand and then introduce evidence that she said the same thing on another six or seven or eight times. That's, That's we, we've called that we've, we, called we've identified that. that as bolstering, right? Right. This improper bolstering of a witness is not allowed unless the cross examination attacks the witness's credibility in some manner. But there are some important points here that are widely misunderstood and deserve our attention. If the cross-examination attacks the witness's credibility because of her reputation for truthfulness or because she was previously a convicted felon, prior consistent statements are not admissible. Now, Tane, let's, re- let's, let's, let's wallow down there for a second. Sure. Not all impeachment leads to rehabilitation. That's right. It's only the rehabilitation is allowed if, for example, you made a prior inconsistent statement. Well, then the number of times you said the other is relevant. Right. And and that makes sense. I but mean, the fact that you were a convicted felon doesn't right. make how many times you said it any more relevant, right? Exactly. I mean, think about that from a logical standpoint. Well, you were convicted of, uh, you know, lying to a police officer, giving false statements to a police officer in, you know, 2022. Uh, okay. But I told the truth several times <laughs> to multiple witnesses outside the court. Okay. That doesn't matter. Like that doesn't change your convicted felon with, status. Yeah. Or, with respect to the convicted felon status. Now, if the witness's credibility is attacked and a prior in a prior consistent statement logically rebuts that attack, it's admissible. I mean, you're not forever bound for not 
producing that, but it has to be an attack first. Lawyers and judges both, Tane, largely misread the statute, and they... <laughs> Rule 801D1A, for example, exempts a testifying witness's prior consistent or inconsistent statement from that definition of hearsay if the statement qualifies under 246613 as a prior consistent or inconsistent statement. So then you look at 246613. Look at C, Tane, and, and tell the people what it says. A prior consistent statement shall be admissible to rehabilitate a witness if the prior consistent statement logically rebuts an attack made on the witness's credibility. A general attack on a witness's credibility with evidence offered under Code Section 24-6-608, um, which is our section on uh, character issues, and or, or 24-6-609, which is prior convictions of a witness, as we said a minute ago, shall not permit rehabilitation under this subsection. That's what Wade was just talking about. If a prior consistent statement is offered to rebut an express or implied charge against the witness of recent fabrication or improper influence or motive, the prior consistent statement shall have been made before the alleged recent fabrication or improper influence or motive arose. So, in other words, timing's important in there in ter terms of when the statements allegedly occurred and how they occurred. So, Tane, we underline this in the memo. Please notice the punctuation at the end of the first sentence. Yes. That those two things about recent fabrication is not the only way you can get in a prior consistent or a prior consistent statement. There was a misunderstanding for a significant period of time that there was a singular way to do that. And that, that all, the only way you could get a prior consistent statement is if there was an attack of recent fabrication. That's not true. And the, the punctuation of the rule makes that true, makes that not true. So don't be fooled into refusing to admit testimony of a prior consistent statement when the parties object because the cross-examination did not allege recent fabrication. That's only one of three different ways that that could come in. So just look at this. It, it's in your memo. I hope that you find these memos helpful. It was interesting reading this and going through today's episode. I found a couple of typos that I've got to fix because <laughs> they really changed uh, what had done, what I had, what the outcome of the rule was. Um, shout out to Emma Mullins. She was my summer intern this year. Emma. And she Woo. did all the research for this. So. With that being said, uh, please check us out at goodjudgepod.com. Where yeah. can they communicate with us if they'd like to do more than just check out those memos? Yeah, please, please, by all means, um, send us a, a note or a message or uh, an email at uh, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We love to hear from people. We get a lot of ideas for the podcast from judges and lawyers and people out there who listen to the podcast. And I just want to thank everybody again who does listen to the podcast. Our, our listenership is is growing, and we're kind of excited about that. We we sort of felt like at the beginning of this thing we'd be limited to the 220 superior court judges and that not many of them would probably be that interested in podcasts, and we find that we have hundreds of listeners um, every time we drop one of these, and that's really satisfying to us. We, we hope it's being some help and that you're enjoying what we're putting out there. And if so... 
Please like us on your favorite podcast platform, uh, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, or any of that. Uh, you can also uh, follow us, uh, and you can now also check us out on our LinkedIn page for the Good Judgment Podcast and follow us on there. And the advantage to that will be we're going to have a, uh, an update so that uh, when our followers on the LinkedIn page uh, uh, every month when we drop a new couple of episodes, we will send you an update and give you a link to that so that you can listen to them. So anyway, thank you all for listening. We really appreciate it. With that, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tame Kell. Don't forget to like us. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. We try our best to give you actionable information, but in a format that does not make you want to hurt yourself. Two thoughts. Some topics allow us the latitude to be a little bit more fun. Number two, if we've failed you, we will try to do our best to do better in the next episode. We know that you have lots of choices and we're honored that you chose us this time. We're kind of amazed to be totally honest. This podcast began as a project that was initially the brainchild of Doug Ashworth, the former director, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to Mr. Henneberger and the entire University of Georgia College of Law, my new part-time employer. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But hey, nobody can get it all. Thanks to our unsung hero, Kevin Holder. You are instrumental in our podcast being published and made available to the public. We should have been singing your praises all along, but we didn't, so... Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges all across Georgia. Wade and I are also grateful to the State Justice Institute who allow us to do this through their generosity. You know that these are our opinions and do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, SJI, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anyone else for that matter. Contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise. Contact someone else with your complaints. But seriously, we would love your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Please visit our website, goodjudgepod.com, for all our episode outlines and more details about our podcasts. Some of you send emails asking for copies of the outlines. Seriously, people, they're available 24-7, 365 at the website goodjudgepod.com. And we say that like 20 times during every broadcast. But seriously, you can upload or download or otherwise use them as you wish and on your schedule and at your convenience. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And as always, I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Tane, I guess it's time to bang the gavel on this episode. Any last thoughts before we wrap this up? While he was in college, Chevy Chase played drums for the band that would ultimately become Steely Dan.